Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast with Ayan, myself. We have Ruby in the house. Hey. And we've got Lauren Hello. and George is, uh, isn't is here with us today. Um, she's asleep, uh, I asleep, hope. Asleep, uh, hopefully. <laughs> um, she's got tons of um, assessments that she's working on and research um, endeavors. So we will miss her and we will miss her community announcements. Mm-hmm. So in place, we will play um, some amazing uh, songs by... Sampa the Great, mm. who I saw um, over the weekend at St. Was it St. Paul's Cathedral? Oh, did you go to the music? Yeah, week? Oh. and I went backstage and I saw all these amazing people. And she had no braggies. Yeah, no braggies, of course. <laughs> you can tell by my voice. There's just so much shade. Um, she brought on stage with her um, an amazing crew of. Um, uh, black artists. So we mm-hmm. had folks from um, uh, the PNG. We had folks um, uh, from the continent, the African continent, and we had um, some indigenous representation. So she had like six or six, seven, eight people jump Beautiful. on her. I'm jump up on stage <laughs> on her. Sorry, my my. Um, it's early morning, so apologize. Um, yeah, so they went up on stage and they were doing um, background. Um, for her and that was amazing they sang oh, black amazing. girl magic they sang um by river we'll definitely play both of those we today. can play yeah so um stay uh tuned um we will be hearing an um an interview that ruby will be doing with leslie vick who is the president of the board for dying with dignity victoria This year, thousands of people seeking asylum will spend another holiday season incarcerated in offshore prison camps and Australian detention centres. Men, women and children are separated from their families, living in horrendous conditions and have no certainty of their future. Join the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre to let them know that they are not alone and we hear their plea for safety. Sign the open letter to deliver a message of hope to people seeking asylum and refugees by Christmas. Visit addmyvoice.org.au, a 3CR supporter. On the line is Leslie Vick, president of the Dying with Dignity Board, Dying with Dignity Victoria Board. Leslie is an activist and has had a long-standing commitment to law reforms, which protect civil liberties, personal autonomy, and self-determination. Leslie, welcome to 3CR Tuesday Morning Breakfast. Thank you, Rudy. So first, I'd just like to know a little bit about Dying with Dignity Victoria and the organisation's work over the last few years. Well, the organisation has always been... It was set up originally as the Voluntary Euthanasia Society of Mm. Victoria. And it's an education and advocacy body. Um, We've been concerned to advance people's rights in relation to their end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've advocated, for example, for assisted dying law reform, and we're very pleased that that point has finally been reached in Victoria... Um, other aspects of our work, and I think it's important to remember that 
assisted dying uh, comes at the end of a person's life and there are many aspects of that as a continuum mm. of, of care. We are, for example, strong supporters of palliative care. Um, we're strong supporters of uh, advanced care directives being given legal recognition, which they were, by the Victorian Parliament last November, and uh, that legal standing for advanced care directives will come into force in March next year. Yeah. Uh, we run workshops. We provide a lot of information on our, on our website and uh, seek to educate and inform the public as much as possible about the whole issues of, of, of end-of-life care and dying with dignity, as well as the particular part of it, uh, assisted dying reform, such as just has gone through the Victorian Parliament. Mm, so very, very wide-ranging then. So can you just tell me a little bit about... Um the Victorian, so the Victorian Upper House, um, it was just 22 votes to 18 after a very long and heated debate. The bill was finally passed. Can you tell us a bit about that and what changes we might expect to see um, in the coming years given the Parliament's decision? Right. Well, it's been very important, among other things, I think, that the Victorian Parliament has come to reflect public opinion on this issue. It's been, there's been long-standing support, as public opinion polls have shown, for assisted dying laws. This legislation, <clears throat> pardon me, that's gone through the Victorian Parliament is very conservative. Uh, there are numerous jurisdictions overseas in both Europe and North America that have assisted dying laws in place, um, and some of them, in the case of Oregon and Victoria, for example, have been in place for nearly 20 years. Mm. So a very, very extensive research and investigatory process was gone into before this legislation came into Parliament. Mm. A, a parliamentary committee of inquiry went on for 10 months. Most members of the committee went overseas to the jurisdictions that have been in place so we could learn from their experience. And their report after their 10 months uh, recommended, among various other things to do with end-of-life care, that a legal regime be put in place in Victoria because the needs of those people who were suffering and whose suffering could not be uh, assisted by palliative care at the end of their life, this is one final piece of the jigsaw to be put in place. Right. The government then set up, and I think it's really important to understand this, this sort of background that's gone on for the best part of two years mm. before legislation came into being, an expert advisory panel chaired by Professor Brian Owler, the immediate past president of the AMA, and the advisory panel had on it experts in nursing, palliative care, legal experts, legal experts, pardon, and they then conducted more community consultation. The original committee of inquiry had over 1,000 submissions, uh, just to give you some idea of how extensive it was. Yeah. The expert advisory panel conducted more community consultations with both stakeholders and individuals and they recommended the terms of the of the legislation. That's a large piece of legislation, but just in brief, yeah. it involves people who are dying or suffering intolerably whose death would occur within six months or less, except for people with an advanced uh, degenerative disease like motor neurone disease. They then have to make three clear requests, one in writing that they wish to access medication so that they have within their control uh, a way of finishing their life if, if their suffering becomes intolerable. 
they have to be attended by two doctors. There has to be called what's a, a coordinating doctor mm-hmm. and a consulting doctor, one of whom has to be an expert in the disease the person is, is suffering from. The request, assuming the person, they have to be an adult over 18 of sound mind uh, making this request, and then it has to be signed off by the, the department. Then the medication is prescribed and the, it is supplied to the, the person. Now, there's a whole lot of measures in place in the legislation to ensure that the medication is kept safe. And most estimates are that there would be no more than about 200 people a year, it'll, it'll turn out as it does, accessing this. But for those people who are suffering intolerably, it'll be a very important means of having control and choice when they're dying and they're suffering intolerably. About a third of the people in Oregon, for example... Right. And can I ask, how do you estimate that number, the 200 200 people? Oh, well, well, I'm not estimating the number. It's the experts who've done this. Professor Owler, the expert advisory panel, their, their estimate was that it would probably be maybe 150. It's very hard to tell, but yeah. it's, my point here is it's not going to be a large number yeah. of people, okay. fortunately. Fortunately, you know, not a lot of people end up in these circumstances when they're dying, but it's a terrible, terrible situation for people who do. Yeah. The coroner's evidence, for example, to the original committee of inquiry was that about one person a week in Victoria ends their life prematurely in often violent, lonely circumstances because they fear they won't have this choice Mm. at the end of their life, because they're suffering in some way and they end their life prematurely. Mm. I want to make the point most importantly here that we're talking about people having choice and control in these circumstances. There's no doubt whatsoever from the research overseas that when people know this is within their control, um, the the quality of their life improves and, and quite if you look at the coroner's evidence, very likely it would extend people's lives mm. rather than shorten them because they know they have the choice there. The other point I want to make about the legislation without going into all the technical details because it is very large, mm. we're talking here about self-ingestion. Um, it, is, it is somewhat disappointing when opponents of assisted dying laws tend to talk about all this in terms of killing people. Yeah. We are talking here about people making a decision themselves um, making the request, going through that very rigorous process that I mentioned before, they wouldn't qualify mm. if, if they didn't go through that process. And another thing, for example, if there is any suggestion of the person making the request having um, any sort of mental health problems, well, obviously then they would be looking, the two doctors overseeing the situation would, would get a psychiatric advice. But it should not be assumed that people making these requests have mental health problems yeah. talking, suffering people who are at the end of their lives. Mm. So in light of that then, um, and the fact that you mentioned earlier as well that polls have consistently showed over the last 10 years that Australians support um, voluntary euthanasia or assisted dying, depending on what you know the terms were that were used at the time, um, why do you think it has taken so long for Parliament to act on this? It's very hard to understand, Ruby, because... 
as I say, the polls have been consistent. Numerous attempts have been made in various states around Australia. Just earlier this year in South Australia, a bill was lost by one vote. Um, similarly, in the upper house in New South Wales recently, a very close vote. Mm. Um, I can only express how pleased I am, and most importantly, it will be welcomed, of course, by the overwhelming majority of Victorians that our elected representatives have come to this point. Some people, of course, uh, object to this, they're opposed to this being available. Now, I would assume from that they would not seek to access it themselves. Mm. The legislation provides for a conscientious objection clause for any doctors who don't wish to be involved, so no health professionals would be forced to be involved if they don't want to be. So I think it's very hard to understand why when people who are opposed would not it's not going to be compulsory, obviously, if they don't want to access it themselves. Yeah. And medical practitioners wouldn't wouldn't have to either. It's it's a bit of a puzzle, really, because yeah. the opinion in the community is so very clear yeah. and has been clear consistently so over a very long period of time. The thing to be pleased about, I think, is that after a very long, detailed, careful process, a very strictly controlled piece of legislation has been put before the Parliament and has now been passed. There were a couple of minor amendments made, as you would know, during the Upper House debate that we expect when it goes back to the Lower House for final approval, that'll just be a formality, yeah. because the Lower House already passed the legislation quite comfortably. Yeah. So I do just want to touch on, you've already spoken about this um, a little bit, but you know, during this whole debate, I know that the, the legislation has passed, which is excellent, and I'm very happy about it as well. Um, but people have put forward arguments, you know, the, the slippery slope argument, in other words, that, you know, the legalising of voluntary assisted dying could lead to involuntary assisted dying, um, and also that there are insufficient safeguards to adequately protect the vulnerable. Um, I'm wondering, you know, do you at all share any of these concerns? No, and I'll tell you why. Um, the very strict process in, in embraced in this legislation is precisely designed to ensure that people are not making this decision under duress or in some way. Um, people who are not of sound mind, for example, uh, would not would not qualify. It, it's someone, an adult, who of sound mind has made the request, made three requests, one in writing, etc., etc., as I went through before. Um, I also think that the two doctors who'd be involved in the process would very clearly understand uh, if anyone were doing this under any sort of coercion from someone else. So I think the protections are there for that. With respect to the slippery slope argument, well, we can easily learn from overseas. Yeah. The legislation in Oregon, which is the model that's closest, not identical to, but the closest, to what we are going to have in Victoria um, has been in place for nearly 20 years and has not been changed. And the other point I want to make about this is that even when the legislation passes, there is an 18-month uh, implementation phase. Mm. Um, it would not come into force until June 2019. And during that 18 months, there would be education, training and putting in place, for example... Uh, the Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board, a board that would be appointed to oversee this whole process, that would report to Parliament on a regular basis, just as happens in these overseas jurisdictions. And if you look at it the other way round, if you're concerned about slippery slopes and safeguards, mm. 
things are not safe now. Um, I mentioned the coroner's evidence before, so people are, are ending their lives prematurely in, in lonely, violent circumstances. In the administration of end-of-life care, um, the administration of terminal sedation, for example, which is used in the context of palliative care, while it is there to alleviate people's pain, it also has the effect of hastening their death. Mm. There are no guidelines, no rules, no regulations covering that. So I think we both have, A, a situation now which is not open and transparent and monitored and regulated, mm. and that is less safe than a strictly controlled, regulated, open and transparent system which will exist once this legislation comes into force. Mm, yeah, I absolutely agree. So finally, I do want to know where to for um, Dying with Dignity Victoria from here, given this recent political success. Right. Well, first of all, we would, we would want to, you know, be uh, offering any education uh, expertise that we can during the implementation phase uh, so that uh, everything is put in place properly before the legislation comes into place. We would then continue our education role and advocacy role as we monitor how mm. the legislation is working. We want to ensure that people's rights and choices at the end of their lives are respected and that's something that we would continue to be actively engaged with. Yeah. All right. Great. Um, Leslie, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Leslie is the president of the Dying with Dignity Victoria Board. Um, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Ruby. That was Leslie Vick, president of the Dying with Dignity Victoria Board. She spoke to us about the bill that was recently passed um, in the Victorian Upper House um, for voluntary assisted dying. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm starting December 6th. Darabin City Council is currently undertaking community consultation for the Northcote Aquatic and Recreation Centre, NARC. If you are currently using, have used in the past or don't currently use the centre, we want to hear from you. To provide feedback, please go to yoursaydarabin.com.au forward slash NARC or collect hard copies from NARC reception or Preston Customer Service Centre. Community consultation closes Sunday 10th of December. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast with Ayan, Ruby, Lauren, George, who isn't here with us um, uh, today, um, but uh, she's probably listening in, and I think she's probably texting you, Lauren, if I know George. Um, so now we're going to be listening to Sampa with her song By River from the album Bees and the Birds. was the brilliant Sampa the Great with By River from her new album, Birds and the Bees. And you are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. It's currently 16 degrees and it's going to be a beautiful top of 29 today. 
Lovely. Um, so we were just going to give you a little bit of a news update. Ayan is laughing at me. Uh, no. <laughs> I wasn't. Sorry. You um, caught me. But I was laughing at something else. But thank you for putting the spotlight on me. My Go pleasure. On. Uh, so if you were not on the internet yesterday, you may have missed that Triple J have announced that they're changing the date of the Hottest 100 countdown and celebrations. And they're moving it to the 27th of January. So mm. not on Invasion Day anymore. And that was a decision based on what Invasion Day means to Indigenous Australians. Mm. Um, it's caused a lot of backlash. Um, the government, as far as I know, hasn't responded yet, like they have with all of the local councils, but I guess we will wait and see. Um, and overnight, Susie O'Neill, the former Olympic swimmer, has come out as another woman alleging sexual harassment by Don Burke. Um, mm. So that is pretty huge. I think that's over 50 women now. Mm. Wow. Um, in like a 24-hour space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a two-second clip in the morning um, just as I was about to leave. Mm. Um, he, there was an interview that he did. I can't remember with which program. 60 Minutes. Was yeah. it 60 Minutes? Yeah. So with 60 Minutes and then he was saying how women are sort of taking advantage of the Weinstein situation yeah. and they're playing, mm. um, they're falling into this victimhood and you're like, dude. Yeah, well, he also said social media is to blame and... Um, actually disclosed that he has Asperger's as well in that interview. So it was a pretty mm. – I, I don't know if anybody really knows what to think after that interview. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so a bit later in the program we'll be giving you a Manus Island update and we'll go a bit deeper into some Middle Eastern news. But we'll just hear a couple of community announcements before we go to an interview with Professor Jane Marie Ma. Sometimes when you need help most. If you need things like food, a place to stay or counselling support, there's no shame when you ask Izzy. Askizzy.org.au is a website that helps you find what you need now and nearby. It's made for mobile and all searches are anonymous. Plus there are no data fees if you're on the Telstra network. No shame, just ask Izzy. That's askizzy.org.au. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. 
Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. And now we will be listening to an interview Hope did with Meng Zhu Fu. Um, and hopefully we'll try to reach January March. Um, in the meantime. With me on 3CR Breakfast, I, all the way from New Zealand, we have Meng Zhu Fu. Meng Zhu is the Youth Project Coordinator at Shakti Youth. Um, hi, Meng Zhu. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Thanks for having me. So you're here all the way from uh, New Zealand. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're here and the work that Shakti Youth does? I'm here in Melbourne to... Uh, support the team here for their AGM. Um, so Shakti New Zealand uh, is an organization that was started by a group of migrant women in 1995. And they had initially set up a support group where they found that one of the major issues in the community was domestic violence. So they ended up growing to a Australasian organization that does domestic violence intervention and prevention. And my role at Shakti as a youth project coordinator, I do a lot of work in high schools in Auckland with Asian, Middle East and African youth around family violence prevention. Uh, Shakti Youth was started by a group of young migrants who wanted to make a real change about family violence in our communities. And we were all brought together by uh, the founder of Shakti, Harita Sultana, who saw a real need for youth to lead in the social change around family violence. And in the beginning, we just um, got together a group of us and organized a inter-school conference to gauge the issues around uh, cultural bullying, around family violence, around racism in our communities, and things that are very specific to Asian, Middle Eastern, and African youth um, in Aotearoa because... Most of the organizations are very much mainstream um, or specifically focused on Maori and Pacifica youth. So there wasn't really anything for um, yeah, young people of Asian, Middle Eastern, African background. Um, and that actually came about because 
Shakti saw a lot of cases of young women, um, teenagers who were going through issues such as forced marriage, honor-based violence, and parental abuse. And there were really severe kinds of violence that um, some of the adult staff didn't really know how to deal with because the effects of it included like um, self-harm and suicide attempts. So yeah, they were really needing some youth leadership around creating an intervention and prevention model that worked for youth. So mm-hmm. it's all about kind of self-determination and addressing the issues in our communities and not letting, um, I guess, external um, or the mainstream people trying to dictate to us uh, what the solutions are because we are from the communities and we have lived experience. And I think that speaks a lot and means a lot in our organisation. Mm. And in terms of... Um, uh uh, in terms of mainstream services, I mean, what I've seen is that a lot of the times um, d- the dominant society, the dominant white society, I guess, looks at our cultures um, and thinks that our culture is part of like the the problem. Like so you saw some of the stigma and shame when our communities are looking for a space to try and address these problems because of the scrutiny from dominant cultures. It's very hard to address some of these. And, you know, I think that if, I, I know that family violence happens to everyone mm. and anyone. Yeah. So the problem is not necessarily our individual cultures, but patriarchy in our cultures and gender inequality in our cultures. And sometimes that might happen in culturally specific ways, but it's very much there in the dominant culture as well. Like sexism, misogyny, rape culture is rife in most cultures that um, have hierarchical structures. Mm, Definitely. And so, yeah, and this is why these uh, spaces that are by and for communities are so important. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's been really awesome for me being in Melbourne and meeting some of the other uh, people of colour and w- especially women of colour that are involved in trying to create a change here. What That's really exciting for me to see. Great. The areas that you work in are women's development, empowerment and domestic and family violence, intervention, prevention and awareness. Um, how do young people experience family violence as opposed to to adult to adults so the majority of the family violence or domestic violence sector focuses on the relationship usually between um, partners or uh, spouses so what we've found um, over the years is that for young people there's a lot of parental abuse um, or sometimes sibling abuse or dating violence, um, which can be really specific to... um, It can happen in culturally specific ways for especially young women um, of migrant refugee backgrounds. Um, For the ones that have grown up in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, there's often kind of identity and cultural conflicts. um, Having... uh, Dealing with a different culture at home compared to dealing with their school environment, which can create some tensions in the family. Mm. Um, Yeah, definitely. One of the um, campaigns uh, that that you had was the Find Your Voice campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Find Your Voice campaign was initiated 
after the murder of Sidra Malik. Um, she was a 18-year-old young woman from West Auckland, and she basically had uh, grown up witnessing violence. Um, her mother was also murdered along with her, and it was a big uh, wake-up call, I guess, for us to really shine a light on the experiences of young people and children who witness violence and to be able to um, provide a, a visible support system that they can also reach out for support and reach out for help if they are needing it and there is culturally appropriate services for them. Mm. Um, one of the things, uh, because I was really lucky to go and, and, and see a presentation about your work, but one of the things I really liked was how you also try and address some of um, the structural violence that, that exists. And I guess um, uh, some of the structural violence, I guess, that also is is inflicted upon migrant and refugee communities. Can you tell us a little bit about um, structural violence and how it's related to um, to to um, family violence? Yeah, definitely. So, for example, um, for women who don't have permanent residency, um, there's a lot of barriers to seeking support and a lot of barriers to accessing um, some basic needs such as uh, healthcare and housing um, and work and income support, which I guess in Australia context is places like Centrelink. Um, so they don't have a lot of the same rights as women who have um, permanent resi- residency or citizenship. Um, so they often end up being in a more vulnerable position. When we talk about structural violence, it's the kinds of violence that we don't necessarily identify as violence. So it's the institutions and the systemic issues that create conditions where um, women, and especially of marginalised communities, um, experience social suffering. So those are, those are the aspects that are a lot harder to address compared to the more visible forms of violence, um, which I think family violence used to be a form of structural violence until it became more talked about mm. and uh, more addressed in the open. So, yeah, so there's issues for around immigration status. So that's like a form of structural violence. Um, I guess other forms of structural violence we see is through the court system where there's a lot of institutional racism for against migrant women of colour um, and especially against migrant mothers who are often perceived by uh, some of the family court judges as being incompetent mothers. So even if the fathers have been abusive... And even if the children have disclosed sexual abuse from the father, the family court judge would still give custody to the father rather than the migrant mother. Mm. And um, so, so now we're um, we're sort of marking um, a very important time. Twenty uh, fifth of November is the International uh, Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women and Girls, and as a part of that. Um, People are encouraged uh, to take part in in 16 days of activism to challenge themselves uh, to think more broadly or try and consider things around around um, around uh, gender based violence, I guess. Um, and uh, so, in terms of 
migrant and refugee communities, uh, what is it that you would like listeners um, to take action on or think about um, in these 16 days and, of course, into the future? I think for migrant and refugee women and our own communities, it's really important to take responsibility for the issue of gender-based violence and to take leadership on the issues um, and for people who are outside of those communities to listen to the leadership of women in those communities rather than assume that there's this kind of one homogenous voice, which is often uh, men in the communities who sometimes deny that these problems exist. Mm. Um, yeah, and I would say um, for young people that we really need to be the ones to break the cycle of family violence because that is how it continues into the next generation and to be able to assess what kinds of relationships are toxic and about power and control rather than love and respect. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for that, Mengzu. Um, if people are interested in finding out more information about um, Shakti or gaining uh, useful resources, uh, where can they go? Uh, we have a website, which is um, shakti.org.nz. And we also have a youth-specific one, which is youth.shakti.org.nz. But actually, we're probably more active on Facebook um, so if you just search Shakti Youth on Facebook, you should be able to find us. Mm. Well, thank you so much. And um, thank you so much for joining us and uh, all the best with uh, your ongoing work in New Zealand. Um, and really looking forward to learning more about both your work in New Zealand and Shakti's work here in Australia. Thank you so much. Thank you. And if you're just tuning in to 3CR Breakfast, I was speaking with Mengzu Fu. Mengzu is the Youth Project Coordinator at Shakti Youth. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And we're back and we have on the line with us Jane Marie Ma, who is a professor in the Centre for Women's Studies and Gender Research in Sociology in the School of Social Sciences at Monash University. Thanks so much for joining us, Jane Marie. Good morning. So um, I was reading a lot of your work over the weekend, um, and I just wanted to kind of open this interview with a statistic um, that I found was really shocking, uh, that was intimate partner violence contributes to more death, disability and illness for women aged 15 to 44 than any other preventable risk factor. Uh, so I think that makes your work extraordinarily important. Um so what I was hoping to talk to you about today is gendered violence and its place within the criminal justice system. And I wonder if you could maybe start by outlining for us how gendered violence is currently placed within the criminal justice system. So how it's punished at a criminal level and what kind of deterrence is therefore present. Okay, so there are really two pathways that people can go into when they have experienced um, intimate partner violence. There are civil orders which are apprehended violence orders or intervention orders where people can in a civil court have access to the protection of their partner not being able to approach or um, do you know text or do some of the sorts of things that are not specifically criminal but are nonetheless 
a really important part of what we understand to be domestic and family violence now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously if there are uh, assaults, direct assaults or other sorts of behaviour, people can be charged criminally. It is a reality that that's a less frequent occurrence um, in terms of family violence, uh, except at the more extreme end, um, because there's lots and lots of reasons why it's really difficult for women and police to push forward um, for these um for assaults in the context of that relationship. Often there are children involved. Uh-huh. It's really difficult to get all of those things sorted out. Yeah. Um, and so does that sort of feed into um, this idea about it, which you've written about and some other feminist researchers have written about, um, the discrepancy in responses to sort of public terrorism and private terrorism and the idea that gendered violence is a kind of intimate or private terrorism Um that the fear and that sort of thing? That's right. Increasingly, as we spend time in this work and talk to women, we really recognise that one of the most important things is the fear and control that Mm. is exercised. And, you know, very often, um, unfortunately, there's much more evidence of it emerging now that even in fatal instances where women are killed, there hasn't been physical violence exercised up to that time but there has been this incredibly um, strong coercive control around money around who women can talk to Mm. who they can call um, for refugee and immigrant women that's often access to language classes Mm -hmm. um, that is um, denied so they don't have any supports within the community and that is really one of the effects of terrorism more generally is to be afraid consistently and to not stand securely in your place. So Mm. there are real correlations there between those two things. For us, what's really important to talk about is that the amount of resources that are directed towards public terrorism know, $30 billion routinely in every federal budget, Mm. Um, broad powers of stop and search, of thinking about it, is absolutely unacceptable. And yet, in the the space of of family violence, which is a form of private terrorism, women Mm. can report 10, 20, 100 breaches Mm -hmm. and... There's actually no effective punishment very often. Now, people are working really hard to change that, but there's not the same level of scrutiny of men who are threatening to do these acts, and um, there's not the same amount of resources directed. Yeah, and and do you think that changing the language around domestic violence or gendered violence um, to the word terrorism, do, do you think that calling it that for what it is would sort of elicit a different response from from governments and law enforcement? Look, I think we are in a bit of a lucky moment, in fact, where certainly the Victorian government and, and you know, in our work with Victoria Police too, they are really taking it extremely seriously. Um, but I do think more broadly that, that that comparison and encouraging people to think about that 
and to think about the resources associated with those two different types of terrorism is quite helpful. And Rosie Bashy, in in a lot of her speeches in 2015, did um, use that phrase to, to really capture the sense of fear and apprehension and the way it affects every aspect of your life. And so I think it does have utility. Mm. And in a sort of similar vein, um, you've written about the idea of punishing violence against women as a hate crime. Um, and I note that you you have noted that extreme violence by strangers is rare, but that visibility can kind of be a bit of a platform there to talk about it in those in that framing. Do you think that that is a valuable way of looking at it? We This was arose from work we did on other sorts of hate crimes and it's really very clear that we as a society are comfortable talking about um, hate in terms of ethnic and racial discrimination and I, I think that's really important. Those are terrible events and we need as a community to kind of stand against them. What was interesting to us in that work was that um, where there is clear evidence of gender hatred, um, it, no one's very comfortable to talk about it in that way. So hate crimes are usually, you know, they're usually characterised by the use of particular sorts of language, by selection of victims on the basis of a particular characteristic. Um, and so obviously there are certain sorts of crimes committed against women in the intimate partner space, clearly where all of those things apply. But as you noted, we also did observe that there are these types of um, events, and they are rare, where strangers really clearly indicate their, their hatred of women and their misogyny, and that is the motivator for the crime that they end up committing. And it seemed to us that as practical feminists and also as feminists who've been working in, in gender politics for a long time, that it's really worth exploring every way of talking about these problems and issues because sometimes uh, hearing something in a new or different way or thinking about it in a slightly different way assists in moving understanding forward. And the reality is we, we have an ongoing terrible problem of gendered violence, of gendered sexual violence, of gendered family violence, of, um, you know, in a context of routine harassment and discrimination. You know, yesterday was a red-letter day for that mm. um, in Australia, really. And, and so we some part of our work is always looking at new and different ways of pushing forward or capturing exactly what's going on and assisting, you know, the more people who can see it, the more likely we're going to get long-term sustained change. Yeah, that's such a fantastic approach and I think it's so important. Um, I actually think we've run out of time, which is a shame because I would love to continue talking to you for hours. Um, but thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jane Marie, and all the best with your upcoming projects. Thank you for having me, Lauren. Thanks. 
And that was Jane Marie Ma, who's a professor in the Center for Women's Studies and Gender Research in the School of Social Sciences at Monash University. And if you are interested in the stuff that she was talking about, I highly recommend jumping onto her Monash research page because it's really fascinating work. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. And again, we're going to be listening to more Sampa um, with one of my favourite songs um, that celebrates black girls. It's called Black Girl Magic from the same album, which is Birds and the Bees. That is a Sampa with Black Girl Magic. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom, nitty-gritty. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, and it is 8 a.m., um, and now we are going to turn to some alternative news. And first, I just want to flag, so the Maritime Union of Australia are calling for members of the community to help reinforce a community picket at WebDoc at 5 p.m. today to defend working conditions fought for generations. So that's going to be at 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne at 5pm this Tuesday, November 28. Um, I do just want to provide a little bit of background. So the International Container Terminal Services International is one of the fastest growing terminal operators in the world, profiting off an anti-worker business model that undercuts workers' wages and conditions globally. So with Victoria International Container Terminal, um, is exporting this model to Melbourne. Um, VICT is Australia's first fully automated container terminal. This automation allows the company to shift key functions of the port to Manila. VICT have excluded the MUA from negotiations. So, just to flag some of the key issues with the VICT agreement at WebDoc, it's one, the removal of all penalty penalty rates. So there's going to be no maximum hours of work. Some shifts have to run through to 18 and 19 hours um, and undercutting industry super standards by 2%. Um, So at VICT, workers are being forced to work without meal breaks um, and work extended and unsafe hours, bullying and victimization for standing up for their legal and workplace rights. So, yeah, it's really important that you get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne at 5 p.m. today, or alternatively tune into the Fire Up show this Thursday at 6.30 a.m. for more information. And you can visit um, their website and see the live streaming at http. Um, sorry, www.3cr.org.au slash M-U-A. That is trash. That is mm. such disgusting behaviour. Mm. Get down and support yeah, those people. 5 p.m. Uh, where, where was it again? So that's at 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and that's at 5 p.m. Perfect. Not to be missed. Yes. 
Fantastic. Um, so we're going to go to a little bit of a news update now. I think we were all pretty keen to talk about Manus Island firstly. So just um, a bit of an update on what's happening there. The PNG media have been reporting that the remaining 387 refugees on Manus have been moved out of the Australian operated facility that they were being held in to other facilities. These refugees had reportedly been resisting moving for a number of reasons, including that the centres they've been moved to are still under construction and are therefore unlivable, and really strong concerns about their safety in areas where they'd previously been threatened and attacked by Papua New Guinean locals. Um, Medicine Sans Frontieres have attempted to visit the refugees and provide urgently needed medical assistance, but as reported by Beirouz Bouchani, who was held by the Australian government on Manus, um, it's been reported by him that the MSF have been barred from actually visiting these men, and uh, in that vein, the Australian Medical Association has made an urgent request to the Australian Department of Immigration and to the PNG authorities that they be allowed to treat the men um, who are self-reporting that they're suffering severe psychological trauma and mental mm. health issues, as well as really severe physical health issues for which they're not receiving adequate medication. Mm. Um, so mm. if you are as horrified by this as we are, head to our Facebook page um, at Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR and see the post that we shared, which is by Nish Morris, who's a volunteer with Rise Refugee. And it has lots of really useful information and steps that you can take no matter what your time or financial abilities may be at the moment. Um, And just quickly in some Middle Eastern news, uh, the Saudi-imposed blockade on Yemen has been lifted, which has allowed food aid and urgently needed medical supplies to be delivered to the territory. Um, including 1.9 million vaccines. That's how badly they needed them. Mm. Uh, The New York Times has reported that they're facing the world's worst cholera outbreak, with close to 2,000 people having died since April from the disease and more than half a million people being infected. Mm. Um, Seven million people in Yemen are at risk of famine and nearly 16 million are lacking access to water or sanitation, which is pretty horrific. Um, Let's move on. What have you got, Ayan? Yeah, um, I don't think I have any... um uh, chirpier news um, but I did look at an article from the conversation called more and more Australians will be homeless unless we act now so the article looks at a report by Mission Australia the report is called aging and homelessness um, the report found that there's a growing number of people aged 55 and over receiving support from homelessness services um, So just some stats, people over the age of 55 make up 17% of the homelessness population, 16% of our population is over 65 years of age, and it's predicted that in 2001, which is um, a fair bit away, um, it's predicted to reach 25%. So the um, number of um, aging people, it's just going to get... Um, I guess, uh, bigger in numbers. And the article looks at some of the factors uh, that put older people at risk of homelessness. Um, It looks at the complex needs of uh, older people. Um, It looks at job insecurity, um, people overlooking uh, the hiring of older people, which means uh, reduced earnings. Um, Not all older people can receive self-funded accommodation, And that means they rely on social security and social housing to cover their accommodation and living expenses. So um, with uh, social security benefits, so age pensions are at $407 per week for single people 
and 613 for couples, which sounds like a lot, but when you look at when you look at all the needs um, uh, all the people require and some of the equipments that um, they need to allow them to live, you know, uh, um, a somewhat decent life, that number does not make the cut. So when you factor in rent, bills, um, doctor's visits, uh, well, not doctor's visits, but the medications that they need and so on, the numbers don't add up. Um and the article also looks at how older women are at greater risk, especially if they haven't had um, past paid uh, secure employment, um, which means that this uh, superannuation will either be reduced or they might not have barely any superannuation at all. Um, so the article also goes on to look at the ways that re- homelessness can be reduced in the aging population. And some of it is funding older people, um, funding that helps older people transition from homelessness and also responding to the factors that lead to homelessness. So also preventative measures, not just um, uh, responding to the issue, but also um, putting in place things that will lessen the um, chances of older people becoming homeless. Um so yeah, that was pretty depressing um, when I came across that, mm. and because often you associate um, homelessness with younger people, you think there'll always be care for older yeah. people, and, and and knowing that's not the case, and um, knowing also that you know we're having like an age like an increase in aging population, yeah. and nothing's being done, and. You know, we're going to be the older people of the future. Absolutely. So you can just imagine. Um, another article I, I looked at was Young Girls in Dondale. So the article is from the ABC. It's called Northern Territory, Northern Territory Royal Commission, Girls in Youth Detention. So um, I don't know if you've noticed, but there wasn't much discussions about young girls mm. or um, female detainees mm. uh, in discussions about Dondale. Yeah which I found interesting, but I did come across this article. So it looks at young girls um, in Darwin's Dondale Youth Detention Centre and Aranda House in Alice Springs. Um, The Royal Commission found that uh, young girls' uh, standards of treatment were lower um, than boys. Um, Young girls had less access than male detainees to basic amenities, recreation areas and education there was also issues about inappropriate sexual behavior by guards towards girls and young women um and the girls were treated in a way that failed to recognize the vulnerability of girls and young women um the article also goes on to describe incidents of strip searches Mm. with male guards present and other inappropriate sexual behaviors that um i won't go into detail um Uh, The commission described a combination of factors that lead to unequal treatment and access for girls and young women in detention, including um, shared facilities with male detainees, male detainees who are bigger in numbers at the centre and therefore are prioritised over girls, um, and less frequent and shorter access to recreation facilities compared with male detainees, the report also looked at the shower facilities at the current Dondale as unacceptable and described difficulties girls experience in getting access to pads and tampons. 
That's absolutely disgusting. And especially when we know such a high rate of women in detention and girls in detention have been sexually abused. Mm. Um, Just to think about the re-traumatization that these poor young girls must be experiencing on top of all of the other things you've just said. Like, that's just horrific. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and just the situations that they're put in Mm. that makes them more vulnerable. So um, not taking, I guess, their age and gender into um into factor yeah and yeah just just kind of putting them in harm's way um some recommendations uh from the report were more female guards to supervise the young girls and to also change regulations so that only female guards be allowed physical contact with female detainees now for some uh good news because that's god knows we could do with some good news (laughs) Um, so the this article that I found, it's from The Age and it's called Workplace Relations. Woolworth workers win big wage rises from... Uh, sorry, let me say that again. Workplace Relations. Woolworth's workers win big wage rises farm supply chain. So um, I'm actually reading the link. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's jumbled up. But uh, let's just say that Woolworth workers win big. Um, so 2,000 workers in Victoria and New South Wales have won wage increases of up to 4% a year yes. and also improved redundancy pays. That's fantastic. It's amazing. It's and But it's also sad because in the article it goes on to talk about how um, the workers at the before this win, they were receiving half of the legal minimum wage. Um, some of them working for like $5 an hour, which is, and just knowing that they're doing a grueling labor as well and being paid that much is just, it's, it's horrific. Um, So an increase of $10 an hour for some underpaid farm workers. Um, The Woolworths chief executive, Brad Banduki said the company plans on working with the union and other groups to ensure labor hire providers complied with labor standards. Mm-hmm. So the labor hire providers in Woolworths direct food supply chain would be pre-approved by the supermarket and the National Union of Workers. Um, so the so the people responsible for hiring um, uh, the workers, um, Woolworth would decide um, who 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 those people are, and also um, the union as well has a say. Um, which means accountability. Um, so the article goes on to say that workers would also be informed about their workplace rights and the right to join union. These results come after a three-year campaign by the National Union's workers to expose widespread exploitation in the horticultural sector and among suppliers to the big supermarkets. So that's amazing. And yeah. um, I feel like unions are having a bit of yeah. a win moment at the moment. Like exactly. with the street stuff. And, yeah, yeah, no. Join your union, everybody. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Do um, that. And- just before we head to a community announcement, mm. I just wanted to flag um, – We've talked about some pretty intense stuff in the last half an hour or so. So if um, if you are listening and you feel like you need a bit of a support or need someone to chat to, um, you could give WIRE a call, which is the Women's Information and Referral Exchange, on 1300 or you could call 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732. 
like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, Lauren, Ruby and George. Um, now we're going to be listening to um, some voices from the men in uh, Man- the men on Manus Island, um, the men on Manus Island sent. Um, uh, they were called. So there was a Bring Them Home rally on the fourth of November, and that rally they had some of the men call in and just basically chat to the community. Um, the first person that we're going to be hearing from is Walid Zazi. Walid Zazi is a young Afghan man currently detained on Manus Island. He has been on Manus Island for um, five years. Hi, I am Walid Zazai. I'm sending you this message from Australia Run Detention Center on Manus Island in PNG. The situation in Manus is getting worse and we need your help. We are asylum seekers who have spent 50 long months in Australian immigration detention on Manus Island, PNG. During this time, six of our fellow asylum seekers have died and many of us have become mentally and physically sick. We seek only to live in a safety, in a free society where we can contribute. We want to live in a free, democratic, secular society that welcomes refugees. Many of us come from extremely dangerous situations in countries like Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Burma, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Somalia, Sudan, and Bangladesh. Most of us have never known safety in our lives. We desperately wish to call a safe country home and to be able to contribute our talents, hard work, love, and loyalty to that country. Please, Australians, stand up and speak for humanity if you think refugees are humans. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Now we will hear from Aran Milvaganam from the same rally. Aran was born in Nagakoval in northern Sri Lanka. Between 1995 and 1997, he lived in a refugee camp before coming to Australia as a 13-year-old unaccompanied refugee in 1997. He was detained in Villawood Detention Centre for three months, and in 2011, he founded the Tamil Refugee Council. Aran currently works as a union organiser with the Finance Sector Union and is a spokesperson for the Tamil Refugee Council. It's heartbreaking to see the situation of those on Manus, the the refugees on Manus Island who are denied basic services then and now are being denied any services at all. 
and it is inspiring to see the 600 men organizing themselves and protesting for over 90 days. This morning, I was speaking to a Tamil man on the island. He said they're struggling to make the most basic ends meet. In a few days, medicine will run out. He said 85% of the men on the island are on medication. There is no water. They have dug wells for water, which they have to boil, but they have no firewood. They have to go into the sea to go to the toilet because there is no water in the camp. Hygiene standards are poor. We know asylum seekers have died from disease on manners. There is no food. He said he suspects the local authorities are preventing delivery of any food or supplies to the camp. Friends, the lives of all these men are in danger. Instead of, you know, we hope that the, uh, the laws could protect these people, instead of listening to the laws, instead of listening to the Papua New Guinea uh, court ruling, the Australian government wants to punish these people more. They deliberately, they were deliberately being tortured by our government and now the screws are being tightened. These refugees on manners who have fled such persecu persecution from their home countries are only being subjected to the same treatment by our government. And what is Malcolm Turnbull's response? Our Prime Minister, rather than attending to this emergency call, he is touring Israel and Sri Lanka to help the Sri Sena regime who are still persecuting the Tamil people. These 600 men on Manus Island have not, any, have not committed any crimes to deserve this treatment. Australia must bring the 600 refugees on Manus Island into the community immediately. But friends, our government will not do it though. They will not do it. They want to torture these refugees so that others will not choose to come here. The Labour and the Liberals, there is bipartisan support for this cruelty. It is, it, is, it is the people, it is the people in the community, it is we who can bring an end to this cruelty. Refugees who have fled brutal regimes shouldn't be subject to the same level of torture they fled from. We should continue. You know, just in the in a short notice, we, we have seen so many people coming in support of refugees. We need to keep going. We need to escalate our actions against the disgusting, shameful and illegal tactics of our government. For so long, for so long, we have advocated patiently for change. It's been
been falling on deaf ears. I have come here today not just to be part of this rally, but also to be part of the occupation of Melbourne Street. That's what real fight back is. Let us use whatever means necessary to bring an end to this corrupt system of corrupt system of um, torturing refugees. Let us keep up the fight and never rest until we bring an end to this siege, until we rescue the 600 men on manners and shut down all the detention centers. Thank you. And just a minor correction there, I accidentally pronounced that fantastic speaker's name as Aran. It's actually Aaron, and he does a fantastic Tamil show on 3CR. So Aaron, thank you for that great speech. And now we're going to be hearing from Shofikul Islam. Shofikul Islam came by boat. He's a refugee from Rohingya. He is a union activist and organiser. There are 170 Rohingya refugees on Manus and Nauru. In this audio, he speaks of his experiences as a refugee. It is hard to, it is hard to know where to start because of the horror unfolding on Menace Island. It's almost overwhelming. Among 600 under siege and starving inside of the broken a concentra- a concentration camp, there are refugees from everywhere, Tamils, Kurdish, and more. I'm a Rohingya, and I know there is a Rohingya refugee in that awful place. I can tell you what they have through before they lock up in Menace Island. Over 600,000 men, women, and children forced to flee to Bangladesh from Burma after escalating of ongoing genocide. For over 50 years, Rohingya people faced rape, torture, kidnapping, and murder from the Tamarok, the Burmese military on behalf of Burmese government. The UN Office of the High Commissioner described as it is a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Since, since 2012, many of us have come here, Australia, by boat to seek a safer life. I came here by boat too in 2013. Our community is starting to organize and fight for on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Last month, we had a rally over 300 Rohingyans in Collins Street. Many of our community have joined the National Union of Workers and the national the union is helping helping with us and we feel we finally have a home. The people on Manus Island came by boat hoping for a better future instead of they have had their human rights violation by the Australian government. And we demand the government bring them here and contribute people, peace and prosperity for everyone in our region of the world. 
And for our final audio from that rally, we're going to hear from Beirouz Bouchani, who is an Iranian novelist and journalist who's been held on Manus for the last four years or so. And he does some really incredible reporting from Manus for um, publications like The Guardian. And he also filmed um, a really, really incredible documentary called Chalka, Please Tell Us the Time on a phone. And it's all about what happens in the Manus Detention Center. So he's really, really brave. And he was actually arrested last week. Um, in a pretty clear attack on press freedom on Manus. So um, this is a really short audio because Beirut was cut off, not for any nefarious reason, we don't think, but um, um, so enjoy. We have uh, become refugees for a second time inside the, this hellhole, abandoned and left to fend for ourselves uh, as best we can. We are asking people around the world to hear our voice. We are forgotten people who have been under torture in an Australian prison camp for nearly five years. Even though we have committed no crime, the Australian government is now willfully forcing us into even more danger. And that was Beruz Bouchani. And um, on a fitting note, we're going to end today's show with a song called 77% by an Australian band called The Herd. Uh, This is an old song and it was written about the Tampa refugee crisis. There's a bit of a language warning for this one, but it's um, it's a great song. So enjoy and thanks so much for joining us on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Thank you. See you next week. Whitey round eyes surprise me.